and welcome to the first edition of The Garden Podcast in 2019. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine. And each month in the podcast, I talk to some of the people involved in the key magazine articles. We discuss the painstaking research and passion and the trials and tribulations that go into every word and image. This really is a chance to get to know the stories behind the stories. Today, we've got a cheery edition for you. We're talking drought and blight, but please don't turn off, don't run away. It's good news and useful stuff, I promise you. I'll be speaking to an expert nurseryman about delicious blight-resistant tomato varieties to plant this year, plus valuable lessons gardeners can take from previous droughts. Whether 1976, which was obviously a great year because I was born, 2002, or indeed the summer of 2018, there's loads we can learn from them, what sort of plants survive and how we can build in resilience to our gardens. But first, a word about wildlife. We're approaching a crucial time in the life cycle of our beleaguered amphibian populations. My colleague, garden advisor Helen Bostock, has some really pithy advice in this month's magazine about spotting and protecting spawn in your garden ponds. She told me why gardeners' vigilance is so vital to help protect frogs, toads and newts. So my particular interest is in wildlife gardening and it's just got to be the best time of year to start to poke around and see what's active in your pond. If you're lucky enough to have a pond, and of course now is also a good time of year to create a pond, so good way to keep warm. But if you have already got a pond, don't think that everything's all fast asleep in there underneath the ice because it doesn't take very much for wildlife to start to wake up. And in fact, one of the first things to wake up in your garden are going to be your frogs. And they get very active and a little bit amorous even as early as late January or February. So all it might take is a bit of a mart spell and they're very quick to start coming out, out of the water or the hiding places, sort of under leaf litter that they've been sheltering in during the winter and seeking out particularly ponds that have nice shallow areas. So if you've got a pond that only has really steep sides and you've been wondering why maybe you don't see a lot of frogs about, then It's going to be really good. Either make yourself a new bond, which is nice and shallow, or see if you can build up maybe like a beach effect with pebbles and stones on one side of your pond. That will certainly create an ideal love nest for your local frog population. And then frogs, they start to get in quite a frenzy. Some accounts have been heard of ponds almost boiling or bubbling with the activities of excited amorous male and female frogs at the start of the season so have a little look out for any activity you might not spot them but you might wake up one morning and discover wow there's an absolute mass of this jelly-like substance in your pond so get out there have a little look see what's been going on It's really tempting, and I know those of us that grew up in an era where we used to go with our jam jars with a bit of string tied on and down to the local wildlife pond and go pond dipping and get ourselves a nice bunch of frog spawn. But please, if I can implore you not to do that, just because... There are a lot of diseases, particularly things that are going around, like viruses that frogs can get, that you could inadvertently transfer. So leave the frogs where they are, leave the spawn where it is, and just enjoy it. If it freezes a little bit, don't worry. A really hard frost might be enough to kill spawn. But don't worry, nature can be brutal sometimes. Helen Bostock from the RHS advisory team.
you can read Helen's piece in the February edition of The Garden. If you're an RHS member, this free magazine will be dropping through your letterbox in the next couple of days. And if you're not a member, why not? You should join. Check out the website at rhs.org.uk. Here at the office in Peterborough, we're just getting the last few pages of the magazine sorted and ready to go to the printers. And I'm just signing off the pages as we speak. And as ever, I have to say this because I'm editor, but I reckon there's a really good mix of content in the edition this month. We've got a great garden at St Michael's Mount in Cornwall, which is just showing how plants can adapt and cling to the sides of rocks, grow and flourish in a really tough environment with the salt-laden winds and the sea and the heat from the sunshine. But it's a beautiful garden, really interesting, steep vertical gardening, but just an inspirational place. And uh, we have that on a really lovely six-page feature. We've got a great feature um, all about crocuses and we've got one of our photographic plates which is the USP of the Garden magazine which is where we bring lots of different types of one plant together in one photograph and we've got an article about crocuses and the collection of whistling. They are such a great sight of spring when we have drab grey days even in the RHS and you're thinking about a bit of colour that crocus are great plants for that and this feature looks at some of the collection of whistling but also some of the more choice ones you might want to grow at home. Another feature that really stands out, that really sings about this time of year, is climbers and climbers for winter interest. And with gardens getting ever smaller and fences and walls being an ever-increasing reality of a gardener's vista and view, clothing them in plants of different climbers, different shrubs is really important. And we've got a great piece in this edition all about the different types of plants you can grow and how to grow them and what the benefits are, whether they have um, seasonal interest to flowers at this time of year, they might have scent at a different time of year, but a really useful, practical piece about good plants to select for walls and fences. Often in the magazine, we try and raise a really important topic that is relevant to gardeners and our members. And this month, we've done that through our essay. We have an occasional essay, which is just a couple of pages where somebody really is writing from the heart, writing about a subject that's important to them and they think is important to RHS members. And this month, we have a nurseryman, a young nurseryman, who is saying that actually, is it right when you go into your garden centre in February or March to see lavenders flowering their socks off? It's not. It's not right, and that often that can confuse customers and disappoint customers. And he makes a really good point in the article about why there is a duty and a responsibility on people, whether in a garden centre or a DIY shed or nurseries, to promote plants that are good at that time of year, to not do a false sense of sell or hope or promise on plants that... You might put them in the garden and then they get a frost and they might actually fail. Lavenders are obviously really important plants, but actually they should be sold later in the year rather than having just come off a trolley in flower in the middle of February or March. So it's great to get a young nurseryman writing and for them to be raising an issue that is actually really important and more people should be thinking about. One of the standout features for me is an article by my colleague, Lee Hunt. Many people might know him from the fortnightly RHS gardening podcast we do. Also, he's a garden advisor. He's a very good writer and a jolly good egg and um, he's done a great piece for us all about drought and what we can learn from drought we all know that we're living in a changing climate so we have extremes of rainfall extremes of dry times and actually as gardeners what do we do we can learn from the past and one of the things that i'm most proud about at the rhs is that we listen to people and we continually adapt and refine our advice and lee and his advisory colleagues are certainly doing that all the time 
I spoke to Lee earlier to really talk to him about what does the drought from last year mean to us, how can we adapt, how can we bring in resilience to our gardens, and what the bright future is for our gardens as we live with a changing climate. Lee, you're one of the principal horticultural advisors for the RHS, and in this issue you've done a brilliant piece all about uh, drought, about the summer of 2018, and what it means for gardeners. So tell us, us gardeners, we're always obsessed about the weather, and we're always obsessed about how the weather impacts our gardens and our plants. What do you think the summer of 2018 was like? Was it really hot, and how did it affect our gardens? It was a really challenging year, 2018. Um, now, of course, we've had the hindsight and we know that it was one of the hottest years on record. So along with uh, 1976, the very famous year, the other hottest years were 2003 and 2006. So it really is up there with the, the worst hottest years. But of course, no years are equal. And in 1976, the, the big kind of difference was we'd had a very dry year before the this year in the, the 2018 that we're talking about we were lucky that we had a relatively cool damp spring uh, which set us up better perhaps for the, the summer but we did have very long prolonged hot spells and very little rain as well so at some weather stations in the southeast uh, 50 days without rain so that extent of no rain means that uh, many plants that need little and often really started to struggle, particularly if you either didn't want to water or you know didn't have the capabilities to do so. In the feature, you've brought so many different elements of weather uh, and 2018's weather, but also the different types of plants we could consider. It's a really fascinating piece. I, I see that obviously you've said that the hottest day was 35.3 degrees Celsius, but um, we also talk about the rainfall of the gardens in June. And again, it just it shows a, a different climatic change um, across the country, but Harlow Carr getting 10.5 millimetres, but Hyde Hall getting no rain in June. Is this something that you found was bearing out across the country? It did largely bear out kind of what we'd expect. Dry in the east with Hyde Hall in Essex only getting nothing or very little rain. Wisley, which is a bit more into the, the southern counties, getting 1.4 millimetres, so barely anything in real terms for plants. Um, Harlow Carr being more northerly, we do expect more rain, had 10.5 millimetres, which, you know, is still not much for the whole month of June. Perhaps the big surprise was where we normally anticipate getting a lot of rain, which is the southwest of the country. We get the prevailing winds off the Atlantic that bring the rain there, and only just over five millimetres. And for our Rosemore uh, gardeners, that was quite a challenge because a lot of their planting is very much in tune with having damp, long seasons. And for that period, it suffered more because if you imagine having drought-tolerant plants in droughty places, they will do well. So often our garden at Hyde Hall looked very good this summer, but Rosemore struggled because they needed the drought plants this year too. One of the key questions for all of us is, what are some of the great successes from the hot summer last year? Um, well, the nice thing, of course, is uh, whatever weather you have, it does bring successes as well as failures. And certainly things like squashes and pumpkins did really well. Uh, the other big surprise was um, outdoor peppers and chilies. If we take an average season, you'll really struggle to crop things like bell peppers outside. Um, but with very little, a bit more than a plastic cloche. Um, 
I'm certainly finding from my own experience in uh, a Berkshire garden that one plant uh, was giving kind of a good dozen, 15 fully formed bell peppers by early October. Um, you know, those kind of things we just don't normally get to enjoy. And it, it was really great to sort of see some of those things do really well. But of course, the, there are things that didn't like it as much too. Yeah, so, so on, on, the, on the flip side, what, what were some of the, the more substantial failures that you heard about? It was very obvious to know which shrubs needed more moisture. So we often think of established trees and shrubs as being able to withstand long periods of drought without any need of water. But it became very obvious that some of the viburnums, so things like viburnum plicatum, and things like hydrangeas. Hydrangea, of course, hydra means water, but they were often getting brown edges around the leaves, which was not necessarily leaf scorch, it was often lack of availability of water in the soil, moisture in the soil. And that meant there just wasn't enough to get to the edges of those leaves, so they went crispy as a result. And of course, if that wasn't replenished by the gardener or the rain, then there was a real concern that those shrubs might not survive in, in 2018. So Lee, as a result of observing in your own garden, but also talking to members and visitors, what advice or ideas have you got for looking forward to our gardens growing and thriving in a changing climate? Well, uh, this year we were quite lucky because we didn't have many hosepipe bands, but it really focuses us on the need to collect as much water as possible. So rainwater butts are a really good start there. It's also making us think about the type of features in your garden. So raised beds are very popular in veg gardens, but because that soil is raised up, it gets drier quicker. So if you're on a very dry, sandy soil, um, perhaps actually avoiding raised beds and going back down to ground level is a good way. And then just doing things like incorporating um, organic matter, so composted, well-rotted manure, to hold on to that moisture like a sponge is a really good uh way of, of conserving moisture over the summer months and of course right plant right place so if you know you've got little rain because you're in a drier part of the country or you've got very dry say sandy or chalk based soils then choosing plants that are going to cope with those dry summer conditions uh, is just a very easy way to make it easier for yourself. One of the things that you raise in the article is also um, some feedback from RHS members because you did a survey, didn't you, to find out more information. Can you tell me about some of the highlights from that and what you found out from our very useful and keen and enthusiastic members? Yeah, it was really useful. We asked our members which plants had survived without water and still looked good in their garden. And it's just great to get that feedback of what's happening um, from our members across the country. In some cases, it ratified what we already knew, which is always useful. And therefore, some of the common things like uh, lavender and um, what we used to call sedum spectabili, now the um, hylotelephium spectabili, which is, has those wonderful plates of purpley pink in the autumn, uh, sometimes called the ice plant. They've long been on the list and it's great to see them coming back. What it's been nice to see is some of the, the newer plants that have um, weren't grown very much in 1976, have turned up on our 2018 survey. So the shrubby salvias, those ones that smell of blackcurrant on the leaves, and things like hot lips, which have white and red two-pronged flowers, uh, have done really well and really do like the warm conditions and seem well able to cope with the drought. Another one, of course, uh, verbena. Uh, in this case, 
Verbena rigida, the little low growing one, uh, was a, a really uh, obvious, well performing plant from the feedback we had from our members. Well, Lee, I, I know I speak um, on behalf of most gardeners, and we're normally pretty resilient people, and uh, we don't mind adapting to a bit of change. So um, I'm sure that you and I will be talking about this topic many times in the future. But for now, thank you very much for your time, Lee Hunt. Thank you, Chris. And finally, a problem that blights so many of us. Some people might expect me to do a tomato, potato, tomato, potato blight type of dance, but I'm not going to do that. But seriously, I am going to talk about tomato blight because this is a real issue for so many gardeners. And we're talking about growing tomatoes outside where the vagaries of the weather can affect your crop. I spoke to plant breeder Simon Crawford all about blight. He's done a great article for us about the life cycle of blight, how it reproduces, how people can mitigate against it. But most importantly, perhaps, he gives us his advice on some of the best blight-resistant tomatoes so you can grow delicious, succulent tomatoes this summer. Simon, tomato blight is something that affects so many gardeners and in your article you say it's probably the most devastating disease to affect tomatoes. So from this I can assume that uh, you've uh, been affected by it in the past in your growing experience. Yeah, absolutely. The problem seems to have worsened over the last 10 or 15 years and clearly the lack of resistant varieties towards the end of the 1990s into the early 2000s has caused significant problems. And I think for me and for many people in the UK and across Northern Europe, the problem has almost made a growing outdoor tomatoes impossible. And that's really what has highlighted the problem. And this has been brought to my attention by a number of fellow gardeners, having had the experience myself. And as a result, this is what essentially started the breeding programs that are currently underway to try to find alternative varieties that have got more resistance. So what sparked your interest to write the article? Because you're a lifelong plant breeder, aren't you? That's correct, yes. I think it's just bringing the problem to people's attention. I mean, most gardeners who are growing vegetables know about it. But I was trying to, I think, in writing the article, bring people's attention to what they can do in the way they grow the plants, firstly, but also in their varietal selection and the way they program or put a, a rotation into the vegetable plot that will allow them to at least get some control of this disease because I see it as an opportunity to get people growing tomatoes outside again. So in the feature you say it is fungus-like and it's actually a water mould. So what is blight and how do people know if they've got it? What does it do? Well, it isn't a true fungus because of the makeup of the, the actual organism itself. It can't be classified as a fungus. And I just wanted to bring that to people's attention and that it's more of a mould than it is an actual fungus. Most importantly, it really needs moisture and water to develop, and that these spores, when they germinate on foliage, they produce a black, brown, black necrotic spot, which spreads and spreads, increasing, until it completely decimates the foliage of a susceptible variety. So it isn't so difficult really to identify the disease. It's very different to similar diseases like the alternaria blight, which tends to be much more controlled, many small brown patches with yellow halos that tend to also affect tomatoes earlier in the season. So that, that's really the clue. But when it spreads to fruit, it looks 
pretty disgusting, actually. I think there's a very nice picture of an affected tomato <laughs> at, at the front of the article. Um, yes, uh, I think nice might be the, you know maybe a good example of it, but yeah, it does show it particularly well. And really, once you've got it, there's no going back, really, is it, for that no, season? No, even people who are growing with some kinds of chemical controls, there is nothing available to the gardener that can be used to control blight. So there isn't a quick fix for this problem. It's something you've got to bear in mind, I think, as you start to plan your veg patch and then bring these controls into play as you go through the season. I think the thing that really struck me with the article, which is just so useful because it's quite a technical article in, in some point of view, and it does explain the life cycle of how blight works, but it really does explain to us and, and, and show that actually, you know, it can be pretty challenging to grow tomatoes outdoors because we're only really talking outdoors in this conversation, aren't we? But I think, as always with the horticulture already, with so many things in the world, the more you understand it, the better you can deal with it. So in that sense, what are your sort of your main bits of advice for people if they had blight in their garden before you've mentioned about crop rotation but there's also um, cultivar selection as well but there's I guess there's good husbandry too yeah I think husbandry is probably vitally important I think to begin with ensuring that if you have had blight either on potatoes or on tomatoes on an allotment or in your veg patch try to either really properly compost the dead material or better still if you can burn it good composting properly done will control the disease but i think it's so important to start as clean as you can if possible and making sure there's no material around that could reinfect early in the season is of vital importance then the second thing is trying to control humidity around the plant because there's a period of time that is needed to infect the plants and so you need to have two consecutive days with a temperature above 10 degrees and high humidity that means nine percent or so more and to try to bring that humidity down within the plant is critical so light pruning trimming reducing the amount of foliage to allow air movement around the plant so that the moisture evaporates from the foliage and fruit is a very good way of doing this you can either do this with staked or caned plants or if you want to make an American style tomato cage for the support of your plant or if you're growing a bush tomato in a pot anything you can do just to allow better air movement around the plant is very very helpful you can also try and put a small cover over the plant with plastic but that isn't always easy and can actually cause the humidity to be increased so you're keeping rain off but actually raising the humidity around the plant which of course isn't really the objective that's really useful advice simon but there's also a reality isn't there with a changing climate and sometimes our summers which can be a bit um, hot or dry or wet and damp um it's quite a challenge isn't it if you're trying to control the humidity surrounding a plant and if you've got a few days of rain and your temperature is above 10 degrees is it practical to really look after your plant as much as you can and, and, and to try and stop blight coming yeah you're right chris if you're going to have two days of rain and it's warm and we've got a wet july it's ideal conditions for blight and being able to control that by removing a little bit of foliage and side shoots here and there it is not easy but i still think that some attention should be paid to that but then after that i think you've got to look at variety selection my own experience of growing patio tomatoes in baskets and on the patio is that 
they do dry out fairly quickly. I mean, it is hard work to keep buskets and containers watered. But actually, you know, if there's a reasonable amount of air movement on a patio and, and it's fairly sunny, then the foliage does dry out quite quickly. And, uh, you know, that is a good way of growing tomatoes and trying to keep blight out by just monitoring the uh, amount of dense foliage there is there. That's really useful advice, Simon. Uh, thank you. In the feature, you've given about 10 different selections of tomatoes that are showing good resistance to blight. What are your two or three, maybe, that you find are real good doers, either for flavour or for strength and robustness? The Variety Mountain Magic, which has come out of the programme at North Carolina State University, has been on the market now for three or four years. It has a very good flavour, very good yield of small cocktail-sized fruit. And as an indeterminate cordon type for growing in the garden, it's been shown to be very reliable. For a bush type, there's a couple that I think are very good. I think the variety Lozano has been very successful. It's not quite as resistant as many, but it's got really nicely flavoured small cherry fruit. It's a good doer in a pot or with a mulch, a straw or a bark mulch planted into the soil in a plot. The other bush type that has come available very recently is Summerlast. And that, again, is a very good doer. I've grown it myself in a very large pot at home. It probably hasn't got the most fantastic flavour in the world, but it's perfectly adequate and it produces a, a reasonable number of fruit over a fairly long period. Simon Crawford, thank you for your time. Well, that's all we've got time for for today. We'll be back with another issue of the Garden Podcast next month where we'll be talking about how to grow and cook rhubarb and the issue of plastics and how you can garden without them. Until then, from me, Chris Young, and all the team at the Garden, goodbye. Goodbye.